You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, I am excited to talk to my next guest. She's a returning visitor. Her name is Gabriella Hoffman. She's the Northeast Regional Leader for Young Voices, a freelance media strategist, a political columnist, an award-winning writer, and a host, a podcast host, just like me, of the District of Conservation Podcast, not Conversation Podcast. Um, Although I'm guessing, Gabriella, you have conversations there, but what do you talk about on the District of Conservation Podcast? We do have good conversations on the podcast, anything running from energy, environment, conservation, wildlife, guns, Second Amendment, everything that fits under that purview. We talk and converse with others about. Yeah, and uh, I I forget what, I think we discussed Second Amendment stuff last time you were on. We did. Um, and your, your writing is a lot about uh, conservation and... Uh, I want to. I want what the word that came to my brain was wildlife because I don't know. I just sort of associate everything outdoors with like Duck Dynasty, but you know what? <laughs> what do you really focus on in your writing now? I have several key areas of interest. I largely focus on energy and environment. That also fits in conservation, Second Amendment, what have you. I do a lot on labor policy and small business as it relates to freelancers because that livelihood is under threat, unfortunately, from the federal government and sometimes in Congress. But that's also another interest area because it takes someone, I think it should take someone in my position and others like me who work in politics and also small business to defend our livelihoods and inspire others to do the same. And then whenever I feel like it, I also talk to candidates for office, elected officials, former cabinet members and get their take on different issues. I can be generalist when I interview different people of significant, let's say stature uh, with that. So that's what I typically do, but I do have some key areas that I focus on, but I can, I can almost talk about anything. Awesome. Well, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff today. Uh, Your article in town hall was titled ballot uh, midterm 2022 ballot initiatives, the good, the bad and the ugly. Um, we may disagree on a couple of these uh, as to what was good or bad, um, but we'll get to it. But I, I just well, let's talk about ballot initiatives. If somebody's tuning in for the first time and they don't know anything about politics, what is a ballot initiative? Just give me like the 101 class on it. A ballot initiative is an option for voters to decide whether amending, usually amending their state constitution or state law to subtract or add different type of provisions. Sometimes it could be in the form of repealing a bad policy, counteracting what the state legislature has done, or maybe enhancing a measure that is already law, but giving it more, I would say, backup in that case. It can come in many forms. Every state has a different name for it. California calls their ballot initiative propositions. Then there's ballot initiative or constitutional amendment it kind of varies in different degrees. So some could be constitutional amendments, some could be just overturning good or bad state legislation. And it comes in many forms. Like I said, different states have different names for it, but they can cumulatively be known as ballot initiatives in the general sense or ballot measures. Yeah. For instance, one of the good, which is not on your list, but uh, Alabama repealed slavery this past Hmm. election cycle. So congratulations to Alabama for finally getting that done. (laughs) Right. Um, But because this stuff just kind of hangs out in the constitution and then nobody messes with it until somebody's like, you know what, maybe it's time. Um, But then there are other 
initiatives that are much more important, like some of the ones that you talk about, like Iowa's Amendment Number 1. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Yes, and it was actually overwhelmingly voted into the state constitution. The majority of Iowans voted in favor of that measure, I believe it was Constitutional Amendment 1, to basically codify Second Amendment protections in Iowa's constitution. 44 states actually have this measure uh, codified into law. It's amazing they don't adhere to it. Many of those, if, if they include blue states or anti-gun states, rather. But Iowa became state number 45 to enshrine the Second Amendment into their state constitution. It's no surprise because the leadership all across the board uh, has passed great legislation, the governors, for the Second Amendment, Kim Reynolds, who won re-election. So it's not surprising to me. And they, they're home to many different kind of gun manufacturers and outfits. One of my favorites is Brownells. I've worked closely with them and I'm working on a little project with them as well um, to build my own type of gun. And uh, so they're home to Brownells and other companies like it. So it's not surprising. And I think that was one of the few silver linings and good results in terms of major ballot propositions that came about. So that was, I think, a win for the Second Amendment, even if you don't live in Iowa, too. So it was good to see Iowans vote that in. Yeah, this is interesting because the full text, as you've got written here, basically adds a new section, the right to keep and bear arms, and it closely resembles the Second Amendment language. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Uh, They affirm the right to recognize the fundamental individual right, and any restrictions of this right shall be subject to strict scrutiny. So... We already have the Second Amendment on the national level. Why just copy and paste at your state level? What's the point of doing that? Maybe some maneuvers from the ATF, perhaps some executive orders may be coming down. So in the event of that, they probably want to shield themselves off of any bad federal policymaking that may come from the executive branch. I think that's why they largely... Uh, pass these measures to reaffirm it, even though it's supposed to be adhered to because it's in the Constitution, obviously, the Second Amendment. But I think it's to protect themselves from any changes so that the federal government can't just unilaterally tell the states you have to abandon Second Amendment provisions. So I think it's it's done in the event of any legal challenges, perhaps, that may come in terms of infringements to the Second Amendment. So I think it helps insulate them. And then, obviously, they're still going to have to have legal protection that they'll have to maybe exhaust some means if someone challenges it in the in the courts. I've already seen some news when we talk about the Oregon initiative, which was narrowly passed, unfortunately. Um, we're already seeing some legal challenges. So maybe some gun control group may say, well, this provision is unconstitutional, so we're going to challenge it. And you see the alternative, obviously, with the gun control measure going into effect, putting magazine limits and caps on how many bullets you can have in your magazine and other restrictions for gun ownership as it relates to ammunition. And so... Um, I think it's just a a way to codify it even stronger. And in the event that they have to go to court, they can lean in on the state law and say, well, majority of voters supported this and and enshrined it further into the Constitution and just using use it as a buffer. I think that's largely why they do it. It it could be seen as a symbolic gesture, too, in many from the outside looking in. But I think it can come in handy, let's say, if any challenges to that ballot initiative were to take place. Uh, that could come. And I expect gun control interests may look to dismantle it. That's what they are largely trying to do in wake of the Bruin decision. Yeah, I think in general, A, you look at the First and Second Amendments, how many things just are not done by local and state governments or the federal government because they know it's not going to stand up to the scrutiny of the court um, and how that ends up protecting people on the back end, just having that written down and following the rule of law. 
That's right. essentially what it is. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about Tennessee and their right to work amendment. Can you tell us what right to work is first? Yes. So there is a lot of legislation pertaining to labor. If you're not familiar with labor, I could point you guys to resources, your listeners and viewers to resources. But in the 1940s, there was no protection for workers who didn't want to unionize. So in I think it was um, the Wagner Act of 1946 or 1948 that pertains to the National Labor Relations Act. They put a measure, Congress passed a measure to ensure that workers can have the freedom to choose to associate freely or associate independently of unions. And that is why right to work legislation had come down the pipeline. So Tennessee was one of the first states to enshrine the right to work. Well, right to work does is it doesn't prohibit unionization. It just makes it so that workers can choose to unionize or not unionize. And it gives workers greater latitude to choose what type of work situation they want. And your job is not hinged on whether or not you have union membership. Like I said, it doesn't mean unions don't exist. I live in a right to work state in Virginia, and we have unions that operate here. It's just union membership is traditionally lower in right to work states. But different studies that come about say right to work states actually are favored even by union members saying that they enjoy a better workplace, the better work conditions, and it forces them to compete with private sector jobs that are not unionized too. So I think what it does is it allows also for workers to not only not to have to be forced into unions, it also um, has protections for workers to make it easier for them to be able to say, I'm an independent contractor versus employee. You have those insurance assurances in right to work states. Um, you have more privacy measures as it comes to information, worker information that is not easily accessible and easy to be procured by unions in non-right to work states, in unionized states, oftentimes unions can have your information available, even if you're not part of a union. So privacy, worker privacy, um, assurances that you can identify as an independent contractor more easily, and your ability to not have to be part of a union by coercive means are usually what typically defines a right to work state. And they also have a typically better business climate. Businesses are able to come here. They're often drawn to right-to-work states because it's a more business-friendly environment versus unionized states. So that's kind of what right-to-work is in a nutshell. Yeah. The great Mitch Daniels passed right-to-work here in Indiana, and it's led to, I forget what the number was, but it's significant amounts of billions of dollars of new investment in Indiana because people were willing to come in and build factories here. Um including Honda, I think, that played a part in that. So uh, you you write that the Volunteer State first enacted its right-to-work law in 1947. So why add it to the Constitution? If you've already got it as a law and you're already a right-to-work state, why go that extra step and amend the state Constitution? I suspect Tennessee is anticipating kind of like what I said about Iowa's constitutional amendment. I think because federal lawmaking is being handed down, by the Labor Department. They have a rule currently being uh, de- deliberated whether or not to change how the agency and, and, and kind of reform what the Fair Labor Standards Act is, although it's not really in their purview. That's a Congress thing. Congress is the one that can change worker classification law. So I think Tennessee is anticipating perhaps some federal rulemaking coming down with this proposed Labor Department rule to make it increasingly harder to identify and file as an independent contractor or 1099 worker And so they wanted to clarify that. And I think, like I said, right to work encompasses a lot of things. And perhaps they want to have that uh, to keep their IRS test in in place and to also make it so a pro act that, heaven forbid, were ever to become law. Although I don't see that really happening with how Congress is 
likely being shaked out to be. I think they just wanted to, again, insulate themselves from any prevent, uh, any eventual rulemaking that would force them to have to go against the will of the people, go against their state constitution and say, we have this enshrined into law. This is a very popular policy. And if you do this, this is going to upend our business model and make people leave Tennessee and not want to start a business here or to work in our state. So I think they wanted to preemptively jump ahead any federal rulemaking that could potentially abolish right to work across the land. And I think if President Biden were to lean on executive rulemaking or rather executive orders, which is something he has a penchant for. I I wouldn't be surprised if he feels that he's being hamstrung, not being able to get Congress to push his labor agenda. He may use executive orders to say, well, you know, I'm going to have two years of being essentially a lame duck president. It's going to be gridlock. Why not get rid of right to work? I I wouldn't put it past him to abolish it or, or try to undermine it. So maybe Tennessee is anticipating those kind of maneuverings and saying, Let's protect the volunteer state. Let's make sure our workers are not coerced into unions against their will. That If they're independent workers, they can negotiate their own retainers, their own salaries, and not have to join a union if they don't want to. So I think that's what we can kind of read into it, again, to to make it stronger and to essentially protect the will of most Tennesseans. So if, if something is in a state constitution, does that nullify then the federal statute or federal requirement or because i i i guess you know it was always the states created the the federal government and therefore the federal government was supposed to be subservient to the states but somehow we've ended up where the federal government trumps whatever the states do so uh, how does that work where if it's in your state constitution you can kind of just kick those rules out of your state i think so because in as it is understood in the Constitution, I think this falls into the Ninth and Tenth Amendment, where it's not explicitly stated in the Constitution that the federal government has the authority to do this. I think it it's left to the laboratories of democracy to the states. So I think in many, let's say, uh, cases, judicial cases, um, unfortunately, the First Amendment argument to protect right to work hasn't really stood in court. Uh, when challenges to California's AB5 were presented, they kind of rejected the First Amendment right to associate uh perspective or rather a position there and said, well, you need some more substantial evidence beyond that. That's not enough to say that you're an independent worker versus employee. And so I think it's kind of this gray area. Certainly there are are laws in the books in Congress, but I think it's not wholly defined. And I think it, like I said, it falls under kind of federalism that the states can exercise this. It's, it's, it's left best to them. Um, and as you stated, it, it should be left to the states ultimately to decide what policies they want, not just have this top-down approach. But any question or any kind of uncertainty over what federal power looks like, that's where the states can come in and decide the different policies. That's why um, different decisions were handed down by the Supreme Court to return issues to the state. And we see this outside of right to work that across other issues with how the Supreme Court is made, I think they'll rule more in favor of federalism and not so much a top-down government approach. So I think this is where the Supreme Court potentially could look to say, like, can you force all workers to be employees? I, I don't know if the Supreme Court is going to hear challenges to California's AB5 or, or the PRO Act, because the PRO Act has not been passed into law. But if, let's say, this federal rule goes into place from the Labor Department, um, the Supreme Court is, I think, comprised of jurists who are going to say, well, Maybe this is against federalism or perhaps uh, it's not so much a First Amendment ground, but maybe they overstepped their bounds with the National Labor Relations Act and trying to federalize everyone as an employee. So I think this issue in line with the founding and in line with the Constitution 
should be deliberated by the states. I think a federal policy does not work because every state is different. You can't, you know, impose one policy from Washington onto every state. And I think people are realizing that. Um, But I think also judicial precedent and also just rulemaking that I've seen, especially with this back and forth over independent contractors, they've often said it should be not decided federally because the federal government has overstepped its bound. The wage and hour administration has exceeded its bound on this case oftentimes. And so I think they're going to be leaning on making this like a, you know, federalism issue and and leave it to the states rather, and just go about um, keeping in line with an economics reality test, which makes it easier for workers to be independent contractors, rather than, like I said, imposing a federal rule um, over whether or not a, a worker is an employee or not. So I think it's gone back and forth. President Obama did this previously in his surrogates in the Labor Department and the sub agencies over there. They were punished um, and kind of reprimanded from the courts for using too much federal force in compelling workers to identify as employees versus independent contractors. So from what I've seen legally, from what I've seen in different decisions and just how it's articulated um, and, and with that amendment through the Wagner Act to the National Labor Relations Act or the Fair Labor Standards Act, rather, or I think it's um, National Labor Relations Act, actually, uh, which which protects your right to work. Um, as it is understood, I think Congress has basically said you have a right to work. And so um, states can decide whether or not to do that. So there's already a lot of evidence to support kind of a federalist approach there. What does the government care whether I'm a W-2 or 1099 employee? They want to extract more revenue from you. Okay. That's All the right. goal. They're, they're relying on me to report my income fairly, accurately as opposed to my employer doing it. Essentially. So I think it's actually pretty callous for a lot of these proponents who are against right to work. They say, well, there's so much in lost revenue and companies are mislabeling workers deliberately to extort the system and, and not pay taxes. But they forget that these are workers who choose voluntarily this is not just corporations exploiting workers. I think it's a very small instance where you see misclassification happen. Misclassification, misclassification does occur, but it's a smaller number than presented. But to view individuals who partake in flexible work arrangements as just lost revenue, it's so callous and so bizarre that they have this line of framing and they get away with this and they're never called out to it. But you And, and different polling shows that and, and evidence shows that workers identify largely as W or as a 1099 workers versus W2 employees. And that's how I think um, it can be understood. But when it comes from the tax perspective, they think that we don't pay enough in taxes. Independent contractors, because they're they're having to work on their own, they're not protected from paying um, you know, the self-employment tax includes Social Security and Medicaid or Medicare, I forget which one to the others, one of the one of the Medicare related uh, type of provisions, but you're paying a 15% self-employment tax, including those two um, items, in addition to state and federal taxes. So we are paying more. Your employer actually shields you if you're a W-2 employee from having to pay additional taxes. And so they think that we're not paying enough in revenue. They want to extort us more in, in, in doing that, but we're already paying our fair share. I hate to use that term, but we are paying a lot more than traditional employees do because we're kind of this unchartered workforce and we're independent, but we're contributing our share. And we actually have the most to lose from these type of rulemaking decisions. And we shouldn't be viewed as lost revenue. I think that's so misunderstanding of what workers are. They talk about being pro-worker, but it's really pro-union. And they really don't have respect for workers who comprise the freelance economy. That's largely what it is. So they admonish us. They think that we're skirting IRS 
you know, tax filings, which we're not. We're paying a lot more than uh, others. L- let do. me tell you, I was largely 1099 last year, and I owe 10 grand in taxes. So uh, I always got refunds until I largely started working for myself. So uh, I'm I'm fully on. I'm about to get one of those Dan Bierman taxation is theft hats and put it on. <laughs> Um, I want to talk about rank, rank choice voting, but I think this, you, you sort of mentioned like just silliness. And to me, California Proposition 30, to mitigate high intensity wildfires by tying prevention to taxing personal incomes above $2 million is one of those silly, what? You're just trying to get tax increases through by using wildfire? Like, am I reading it correctly that they're just trying to use sad events to get more taxes? They're trying to shrug their responsibility with wildfire management. They have it in, they have budgets in California. The California state government has a budget. They have a duty to protect forests and to prevent high intensity fires. And the fact that they want to demand more money from high income earners to help field those costs is ridiculous. It means that they're not responsible and they don't treat that issue very seriously. And I think a lot of people assume that if you adopt, let's say, electric vehicles and alternative energy sources to fossil fuels or hydrocarbons, you're not going to have to pay any taxes. But they're ultimately uh, forcing people who do solar and wind. You still have to pay taxes for those. You're not going to escape that whatsoever. They're just going to find a way to tax you like they would if you were wholly dependent on fossil fuels. And California is still backed up by fossil fuels. But and, and then they say, well, with EVs, you're going to pay a lot less. There's going to be fewer taxes. But you're going to have to ultimately pay for that luxury expense as well. There's they want it. California has a tendency to tax everything, even if they say it's going to be low cost or free. Um, but I think it's irresponsible to tie wildfire funding or wildfire mitigation funding to taxing the wealthiest among them. And this just goes to show that California is irresponsible. I have no doubt that measure passed because it's California, of course, my home state. And it. it I don't think they're going to the problem that the left has here, especially with this provision in particular, they think having and accruing more funding is going to solve problems. But in many cases, it doesn't because it just sits there and then they get to abuse their taxpayers and then demand more and say, oh, my gosh, we are you know being hamstrung or we have, you know, denialists that are in California preventing us from doing this. So we need more money you know, to stop the deniers or climate deniers or what have you. And so they're kicking the can down the road. And they started to take fire mitigation seriously a little bit, a little too late, but taxing your wealthiest residents even more, I think they're going to cause more people to leave. They're going to have a shrinking of the tax revenue and it's not going to stop wildfires altogether. Okay. So I've got a surprise for you. 59% rejected the proposal. Oh, did they? I didn't see the, res- I didn't see the results. And oh, here's the crazy part. Many political observers say it is because of Gavin Newsom. Matt Rodriguez says on uh, you can't remove the governor from it. He's a credible messenger on the opposition side simply because I think a lot of people and a lot of Democrats take their cues from him. And he came out swinging against it in mid-September, which surprised many people considering he's Gavin Newsom. Uh, And he came out against that and he came out for the abortion proposition uh naturally right and so yeah there were five states that um all all of the constitutional even in kansas earlier this year all of the places where the constitutional amendment has been tried to codify state constitutions for abortion have failed uh how do you read that i I don't it's not in your article but let's just wade into it i mean we don't have to debate pro-life or pro-choice here but 
you know, what does it say about the electorate's mood on abortion? Well, I think everyone, regardless of where you fall, I'm, I'm personally pro-life, so I, I would like to see pro-life legislation advanced independent of my work with Young Voices. But I think it goes to prove that reversing or rather overturning Dobbs returns the issue to the states and people will vote their conscience, and they're doing that. And ideally, I think a lot of people want to see it play out in the states, even if the outcomes are not necessarily good and people will go back and forth. It doesn't mean that, you know, it was voted to be codified in the amendment. This cycle, will it stay in the next cycle? Maybe not. So the laboratories of democracy, the states are where this issue should play out. I think that's where people largely agree and it, it doesn't eliminate when you return the issue to the state, it doesn't eliminate abortion altogether. It just makes it so states can decide what they want. So I think um, the states are better to administer this type of policy. And I think the pro-lifers will be energized going forward to maybe counteract that, maybe propose a counterballot measure of some sort, or maybe they'll work in their state legislature to counteract, you know, ballot initiatives. That's where things can play out. You can overturn a ballot initiative depending upon the latitude your state legislature has. So I think the issue should play out in the states rather than being codified into law federally. All right. So uh, you wrote in the bad, Nevada's ranked choice voting, the the question three in Nevada passed 53%. uh, And it said, Essentially, elections in Nevada would be changed to a system of open primaries where voters can select candidates from any party, and which I don't agree with that part. I think it should be closed. And ranked choice general elections where voters rank their choices amongst the top five candidates who advance from the primary, something I personally am for, where long story short, everybody's second choice ends up winning um, because people pick their top two or top three candidates in, in a general election and then... Uh, but you, you said that this was in the bad category. What, what do you, what's your take on ranked choice voting and why do you feel that way? Why did you recommend people vote? No. Well, I feel, and I I explained even a little further, I'm kind of, I have like kind of a mixed position on it more ideally, but I was nervous having seen what happened in Alaska, how it kind of favored, uh, the Democrat over some of the Republicans, although the Republicans they put up were not the best people. And I've heard that this lawmaker in Alaska, the at-large delegate, she kind of models Don Young, obviously a unique case there, but I'm a little concerned about this being like a general election meta- method of voting. I kind of articulated that in a primary, in a close primary primary convention, it actually can sift out bad candidates. In the case of Virginia's gubernatorial elections, I thought ranked choice voting was actually executed really well. Maybe as a compromise, uh, perhaps maybe used in primaries to kind of sift out bad candidates or maybe to uh, to put in independents or libertarians, whatever the mood is of the voters. But I think it could be easier in a primary if it's administered correctly and and well I think it could produce better candidates or candidates that are not often, um, you know, maybe defying the two party system or what have you. But I think in the general, it could complicate things. We're looking at the Alaska results. They still haven't finalized it. I think the problem with kind of delays of votes um, can be an issue that makes it more susceptible. I don't know yet if it is more favorable to one party over the other. Um, in Alaska, it's, like I said, it's a little different. It's kind of mixed results. So at the congressional level, the Democrat is favored to win most likely. At the Senate level, uh, Lisa Murkowski likely will beat uh, Kelly Chewbacca. And then the, the Alaska governor, who's a pretty conservative guy, he won. So it's kind of a mixed bag with it. But I don't know if it can be replicated nationally. I think, again, states can decide. I'm not sure in terms of Nevada 
how it will go because that electorate tends to lean more left. Will it open the door for more third-party candidates? Interesting. I'm not sure. Um, will it work well in the primary? We saw in Nevada they had long counts <laughs> for the votes. So I worry with the system in place, it'll make it more complicated. But I can be open to it being administered in a primary, I think, and then just letting you know a regular election take place. But we have to see what happens in Nevada and what turns out from Alaska. But those are the two most primary, I would say, examples of it. But in Alaska, it may not work entirely bad to, let's say, Republicans' advantage or a third-party candidate's advantage. Like I said, it kind of has some mixed results. But we'll see. Um, Kind of like with people waking up for early kind of voting or vote by mail, a lot of Republicans have said in wake of really kind of poor, lackluster results that they're open to competing with uh, early voting or vote by mail and doing ballot harvesting. And I think you may see some shedding of hesitancy to uh, start to maybe embrace ranked choice voting and and learn it if if they're stuck with it. So I think we'll see conversations about that. But I think people have maybe mixed results about it there. Um, I wouldn't say it's the worst policy. I have to learn more about it myself. But I'd heard from Alaskans who were kind of miffed about it. Um, some of them said it was instituted in Alaska to protect Lisa Murkowski, and <sighs> she worked with Democrats to do it. But I understand in principle it can open the door to, let's say, third party or libertarian or independent candidates. It, it, Maybe- it's good for moderates. I mean, that I think that's part of the why a lot of Republicans and party people in both teams don't like it. Is mm. Sarah Palin loses to a more moderate leaning person, mm-hmm. but uh, you know I have a problem with something w- with the top two system that California adopted years ago. Where oh, the jungle primary is awful. Yeah, where <laughs> you you basically end up with two Democrats versus or two Republicans, and it excludes anybody and everybody. But you know if you look at um, Virginia, for instance, Glenn Youngkin ended up winning in their ranked choice voting, who was a mm-hmm. more moderate candidate um still like a principled conservative but not not a stolen election trumpy no, type guy right um <laughs> no. right so i i do agree with you that i think parties are essential for providing uh the institution of political parties are supposed to weed out the nuts but the way that our primary system is it's it's incentivizing them so so i don't know i'm 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 interested to see where this goes too. I tend to favor ranked choice voting because I want people to have more choices. There's, I wish I could remember the name of the book, but um, there's a book that I have mostly read uh, about how Republicans, because I always grew up as a Republican saying, oh, well, we can't have this, we can't have this, and we need voter ID, we need it, like all these restrictions on voting because if we let everybody vote and we take the day off and make it a national holiday, Democrats will just kill us. And that's not actually true according to his research in this book. Um, so I, I noticed this time what you just said, which is Republicans are kind of going, Hey, we need to embrace some of these, uh, some of the openness um, because this is where people are going. This is where the market is going because they want to vote, but they don't want the restrictions. So I'll, I'm I'm like you. It's kind of a, an interesting place to see how it turns out. I, I'm for less craziness, but, you know, I don't yeah, trust I mean, the government to fix it. I mean, it, someone could argue in favor of ranked choice voting because you see some of the candidates who were handpicked by President Trump and they lost. And so maybe in states like Arizona – 
they could explore that option. I'm not sure Arizona. I, I very much worry for them because it is a red state and they have an independent streak. They tend to incline to libertarianism. Barry Goldwater, obviously home to him. Um, and so maybe they may look to adopt it maybe in a primary contest, kind of like what Virginia did in terms of selecting their future nominee. So maybe like a hybrid approach, like maybe in one election, they can do it to weed out kind of the crazy candidates and then maybe go with a conventional election in the general and then adopt some of the other kind of openness um, with elections. And I mean, I have no problem early voting. I voted early in person because I was like, I don't know what I'm doing election day. Maybe I'm traveling. Maybe I have some appointments or maybe I have some meetings or things to do. And so for me, I was fine with it. I saw that my ballot was counted. It was very safe. I presented my ID. No problem. Was able to vote. And I think um, in, in the state so like Florida, actually Florida, Republicans led in Miami-Dade County by like 6,000 votes. They mastered vote by mail. There was lots of early voting and Ron DeSantis won by nearly 20 points. And so they got it figured out. Georgia had also made improvements. They had early in-person voting, vote by mail. It seemed very secure. And so states can make improvements all the while, you know, not alienating people and, and opening you know, creating openness with elections more so, um, despite what Democrats have said about it. So, yeah, I think Republicans see that you can't just have an election day. And I think in the past, Republicans used to be in favor of vote by mail. I was seeing some friends from California post that this is actually something we've done before. We used to be really adept at this. I don't know why we stopped. And then people are seeing the, these different congressional seats in California flipping back to the Republican column because they're doing ballot harvesting. They're doing vote by mail. So we could actually learn from California in this instance how Republicans are starting to be competitive in these voting measures and voting tactics to their advantage so you can get some good candidates and weed out the crazies. It's just crazy to me. So if you listen to your voters and you act like an adult who's being given power and you are normal – then they they elect you no matter what the voting technique is. It's really weird to me. Um, all right, the last one is the ugly, which is Oregon Measure 114, which passed barely in a squeaker at 50%. Mm -hmm. uh, and a yes vote requires permit issued by local law enforcement to buy a firearm. So you have to ask your local police department to buy a gun. You It requires photo ID, fingerprint, safety training, criminal background check, and fee payment to apply for a permit. And it prohibits manufacturing, importing, purchasing, selling, possessing, using, or transferring ammunition magazines capable of holding more than 10 rounds. and makes a Class A misdemeanor violation if you do. That sounds really, really restrictive. It is. It absolutely is. And it goes against where the trends are going. I would think with the Bruin decision... That people and, and just even which, which was the, what, which was to basically overturn the remaining may issue provisions that create obstacles to obtaining your concealed carry permit. So you don't have to jump through the hoops or pay additional fees uh, that make it harder for you to be able to do that. So you can go and apply for a permit. There's no reciprocity yet. I hope there is reciprocity in the future. I think a lot of gun supporters and Second Amendment supporters would like to see that. But slowly but surely, we may be working to those ends. But um Oregon, of course, is an interesting state. You have, it's definitely leaning towards the gun control side. That's typically what it is in the, in the West Coast. That's where they've gone politically, unfortunately. But I think there is some pushback to those policies. However, I think the gun control side was more animated to vote, or maybe people didn't understand what this is, or it was phrased in a certain way as gun safety measures. 
but it almost makes it seem like it's New York. And I don't, I couldn't recall exactly how Oregon compared to New York. Oregon has always been slightly more favored to the second amendment because of just the hunting heritage and the rugged nature to living in Oregon. But this almost seems like more draconian than New York. Like New York has now had to comply with uh, overturning gun control measures. They're very reluctant to do so, but it makes it seem like Oregon is going to have after California, one of the strictest laws in the books, and this is done under the guise of so-called gun safety, but I think making it harder for people who are legally going through the hoops to own a firearm. And I think there's a lot of legal recourse to be made to challenge whether or not to charge people, kind of like a poll tax, to charge people to own guns, creating those obstacles. That's not going to have any impact on reducing crime. It's not going to stop mass shootings. It's not going to stop bad actors from obtaining guns illegally. Oh, sorry. Hold on. I'm going to decline that. You're okay. My apologies. The, sorry about that. I was getting a phone call. My apologies. So where I was. So I think um, kind of instituting like poll tax measures to make it harder for people to purchase guns does infringe on the Second Amendment, your Second Amendment rights to own a gun. You shouldn't have to pay a fee to be able to do that. I know in Illinois that's been struck down. So there's a lot of legal challenges that are going to come with this. And restricting magazine size is known to not have any impact on reducing crime whatsoever. Because mass shooters, they could have legally compliant magazines and they just fill it up and restock it um, versus, you know, having an extended magazine that has more than 10 rounds. And so a criminal who is intent on enacting mass carnage is going to refill their magazine and and reload their gun. doesn't matter what the magazine limits are. They're going to resort to means under the legal confines or what their legal confines are. So I don't see it as a means of reducing crime. And they say this is going to create. Uh, safer environment. But Oregon, with its gun control policies, has become a very unsafe place. And this is going to add to that. It's going to strip Oregonians of their right to be able to either own the gun without having to go through hurdles. And then obviously having to get permission from the local police department is asinine. That shouldn't be happening. And there's judicial precedent to overturn these type of measures. And I know in wake of this passing, there have already been legal challenges filed. So I don't think this is going to be, I would say, Insulate, or I, I don't think this is going to be intact. I think it's going to be challenged, and I think there's a lot of evidence there to repeal these type of bad measures because people could say it will have no effect on crime reduction, and also it infringes on the Second Amendment. So it's 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 amazing to me that they still fiddle with this. They don't learn. They don't see that the trends are moving against this, um, even with you know mass shootings being profiled more and, and they're horrible events. Nobody is saying these are great events. These are horrific events. But people are seeing that the remedies or so-called proposed remedies to stop mass shootings do nothing. Rather, they criminalize people who want to own guns legally. And that's the common refrain that we're going to see. Yeah, yeah. And so this, this law has to be challenged. It, it it sort of defies logic, right? Because if, if the police are racist and then you want to create a more equitable society. And if you're a black person that wants to go get a gun, you're less likely to get one, leaving you more at risk in high risk neighborhoods. Like, I don't know that that doesn't make any sense to me. It's just like, we're not, we're not thinking this through. Uh, so yeah, uh, I won't ask you to comment on that if you don't want to, but I just like, there's always these weird things where liberal logic sometimes just falls apart when it comes to the application of this stuff, because the very people who need self-protection the most in the most dangerous areas of the city are going to people who discriminate against them the most and asking for permission. Okay. Yeah. And it goes against, <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, it goes against, you know, trends. I think in terms of the significant growth in gun ownership, it's black Americans. 58% in the last year. They're the ones who are picking up firearms because they're distrustful of law enforcement in many instances. They see that they don't want to be victims. They want to be able to empower themselves. Women too, Asian Americans, every different voting block or every different demographic rather is wanting to arm themselves in a legal fashion because they can't really count on law enforcement. Law enforcement takes a long time to respond to phone calls and people are realizing you're your own best defense in many cases. And so people want to take matters into their own hands if they, if their life is under threat, obviously. And they, they don't, it's not like a, a admonishment or hatred of the police. It's just that police cannot respond. I know in States like Oregon, they're short staffed. They have had many people leave. Anywhere in California, you go anywhere in LA, there's an armed security guard there because mm-hmm. L- there's just the population's too big, the uh, police department's too small, and people logically realize that if somebody breaks into your house and you're in danger, they may not show up for 45 minutes. Like exactly. they they didn't show up and quell riots in 2020, right? Like they mm-hmm. have no constitutional responsibility to respond to your 911 call. Doesn't mean that they won't. I'm just saying that they, you know, it's just people have figured out that if you live sort of where I live in, I mean, I'm on a, I'm 20 blocks north of the circle in Indianapolis, essentially. And it's a nice neighborhood. It's a, it's a mixed everything, class, race, income neighborhood. Uh, Not many people here don't have a gun. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm and I'm sure they mostly voted Democrats. I just think it's sort of a like people who live in rural areas just think, oh, those people who live in the blue areas are no. It's it's the people up at 75th in Pennsylvania, in Meridian <laughs> Hills. The the police respond to them. They're the ones that don't have guns and want to tell all of us down here how to live. So, um, but yeah, it's very interesting. Well, uh, you've been more than generous with your time. I love talking to you. You always have uh, so many different interesting points. When you come on the program, Gabriella Hoffman, please tell people where they can follow you at Shameless Self-Promotion Time. Young Voices website. You'll find all of my past appearances, articles there. My website, GabriellaHoffman.com, is kind of these, this uh, center point where you can see all of my social media links, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played, Independent Women's Forum, uh, my Conservation Nation video series with the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow. Lots of places you can find me. Would love to engage with you guys. And as always, Chris, thank you for having me. It was fun to talk to you today. Absolutely. And thank you so much, listener, for joining me today. If you learned something, please share it with your friends. It's the best way that you can support your favorite podcast. Thank you so much. We will see you again soon.